If you're a guest with us today, uh, a month ago, we started a journey, or at the beginning of this month, we started a journey through the scripture that we're calling the story that changes everything. Uh, we made our way through Genesis. We're a few chapters into Exodus now, uh, daily. Um, it's hard to believe next Sunday is our last Sunday of October. Um, if you are, have joined with us, or if you'd like to join with us, we actually have new bookmarks for November already out in the atrium for this week and next week, if you'd like to grab one of those at the welcome table as well. But this morning, as we get into Exodus, um, I thought we would stop and reflect a little bit on the 12th chapter of Exodus. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. I want to read together um, the first 14 verses. And if you're with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month will be the first month. It will be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole Israelite community on the 10th day of this month, they must take a lamb for each household, a lamb per house. If a household's too small for a lamb, it should share one with a neighbor nearby. You should divide the lamb in proportion to the number of people who will be eating it. Your lamb should be a flawless year-old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You should keep close watch over it until the 14th day of the month. At twilight on that day, the whole assembled Israelite community should slaughter their lambs. They should take some of the blood and smear it on the two doorposts and on the beam over the door of the houses in which they are eating. That same night, they should eat the meat roasted over the fire. They should eat it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over fire with its head, legs, and internal organs. Don't let any of it remain until morning and burn any of it left over in the morning. This is how you should eat it. You should be dressed with your sandals on your feet and your walking stick in your hand. You should eat the meal in a hurry. It is the Passover of the Lord. I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I'll strike down every oldest child in the land of Egypt, both humans and animals. I'll impose judgments on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be your sign on the houses where you live. Whenever I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And this day will be a day of remembering for you. You will observe it as a festival to the Lord. You will observe it in every generation as a regulation for all time. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I like that my deep affection for the book of Exodus has become a kind of running joke for us. Uh, Because as we walk through the book of Exodus together over these next couple of weeks, uh, it, it has made me reflect on why is it that this text seems to show up about every other week or so in my sermons. It seems like no matter where we are in the scripture, I have the uncanny ability to somehow bring it back uh, to these Exodus narratives. I think that some of that had to do Um, with it probably being the first Old Testament story that captured my imagination when I was a child. Uh, 
When I was in elementary school, my mom and dad uh, pastored a church in Phoenix, Arizona. And there was an evangelist who was a member of the church. And I think my dad would invite him to preach once a year or so when he wasn't on the road holding revival services. And, and he uh, was quite a character, still is. Um, his name is Jimmy. He had been a rock star when he was young and had gone through a radical conversion um, he played the piano, I always remember, he played the piano a little bit like uh, Little Richard or Jerry Lee Lewis, and he'd had a couple of uh, small hits back in the day. But he had a sermon that he would give, and he would give it about every other year on the plague story that, no offense to my dad, but it's the only sermon I remember as an elementary school kid. Um, in part because I'm not sure it was so much of a sermon as it was just a polished stand-up routine. Uh, because I just remember how funny it was, especially when he would get to the, the plague of the frogs and he would talk about stepping and squishing on frogs and frogs in the oven and frogs in your underwear drawer. It was great. Um, I still remember it. But as I've gotten older and a little bit more theologically savvy, um, there are several aspects of Exodus that keep pulling me back. I, I think that part of what keeps pulling me back to this story is frankly its political and economic radicalness. Um, it's a story that emerges from a marginalized and oppressed people. And it dares to believe that despite all evidence to the contrary, the God who created the universe knows these poor marginalized folk, that God loves them, and God absolutely to the core of God's being hates the way that they are being exploited. And so it's a book that takes systemic sin seriously. Um, we oftentimes, especially in, in American forms of Christianity, we, we rightly, we take personal sin seriously. We don't always take systemic sin that seriously. But Exodus does. Systemic sin and injustice in the book get embodied in an empire called Egypt, and especially in a ruler who's generically just named Pharaoh. And even though he's the most powerful person on earth, economically, politically, and militarily, the book of Exodus, and therefore apparently God, does not know Pharaoh's name. But as I've pointed out so often, we're barely into the book, and God does know the names of two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. And God invites them to creatively use the little influence that they have in the world to participate in acts of civil disobedience against the oppressive policies that Pharaoh wants to impose on these people who he just sees as cheap labor. He needs them for their economy, but he just doesn't want them to become too numerous or to find their way into the center of Egyptian life and identity. And because of Exodus's radical liberation politics, it has been a dangerous book for empires for two or three millennia. Even in the last thousand years, when the Christian church and various nation states would get combined and then go out to colonize other people groups and to, like Pharaoh, hoard their resources and use them for cheap labor, this book would always come back to bite them. These various colonizing groups would try to Christianize the people that they conquered. The problem was 
that these folk only had to get a couple of books into the Bible before they began to realize that this God that they had been introduced to was actually on their side. And that they were Shifra and Pua, and this big religious nation was actually a nameless, oppressive entity to God. There's a famous quote by Bishop Desmond Tutu that goes like this. When the missionaries came to Africa, they had the Bible and we had the land. They said, let us pray. We closed our eyes. When we opened them, we had the Bible and they had the land. That quote's really well known, but there's a second part to it that's not quite as well known. Bishop Tutu would often go on to say something like this. But then we read the Bible and we realize that the God we both believe in demands that they give us our land back. So I love Exodus. But it's the kind of book that can get a preacher fired. But I love this book not only because it's so politically radical, but I think the reason I come back to it so often is because perhaps more than any other book that le leading up to the New Testament, it narrates our imagination for what salvation means. So those of you online or here this morning who, who think of yourself, call yourself Christian, if we were to pass the microphone around today and to turn this into a testimony service, almost all of our stories would sound something like this. I was in bondage to sin and to self. And I had absolutely no ability to set myself free. But I heard the good news that God knows me and loves me and can make the difference. And I cried out to God. And God heard my cries and set me free from the bondage of sin and death. And I entered into the waters of baptism, still caught by sin and by self, but in identifying myself with the death of Christ, I came into the waters dying to self, but I came out of the waters set free to experience all of the new life that God has for me. And now I am walking with God in the wilderness of transformation and discovering that this long obedience in the same direction changes me thoroughly from the inside out. Does that sound familiar? It's why this book is so formative for us in the ways that we think and imagine our lives. Because we enter the water as slaves but come out of the water set free, as we sing so often, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am a child of God. And I think that's why I end up in this story almost every week, because it's not just Israel's story. It certainly is my story, and I hope it is your story as well. But there's another reason that I think 
that makes this story so central to us. And it's a reason I really had not paid close attention to until this time through. I would love for you, if you have your Bible still open, to go back to Exodus 12. And I want to show you something that's so powerful to me in this text. So for 11 chapters in Exodus, the author of Exodus or the authors of Exodus have been giving us the story of God's redemption in pretty straightforward ways. The story kind of goes like this. A pharaoh came along who forgot the obligation that Egypt had to Joseph. And this pharaoh then came along and oppressed the Israelites, fearful that they might get too populous and overthrow him. And so he decides to put their, <laughs> make their life miserable through hard labor. But the harder he made them work, the more babies they seemed to have. So he gets violent with them and starts throwing male babies into the Nile. A Levite couple has a baby. They sense that there is something unique, not only about him, but something unique about the way God wants to use him. And so they work and do everything they can to rescue his life. They build a little ark for him, put him in the Nile, in the reeds. And what Moses' mother apparently hoped would happen, happens. Pharaoh's daughter finds him and adopts him, gives him the name Moses, which means brought out because he was brought out of the Nile, although the name seems to be ironic because he will bring his people out of bondage. As Moses grows up, like my daughter Sophie, he's apparently in Enneagram 8. He hates injustice in the world. And whenever he sees injustice happening, he has to do something about it. Um, Unfortunately, he loses his cool. And he kills an Egyptian who he sees beating on one of his fellow Israelites. He has to flee to the desert. But God meets him in the desert. And through that amazing burning bush, gives him both a calling and a promise, but also gives to him God's unique holy name, the God who is. God who is with us. The God who has been with us. The God who will be with us. Moses and Aaron go back to Egypt and God proceeds to put Pharaoh's anti-creation practices on trial and over and over again, the one who tried to control and manipulate the lives of others, God shows him he's in control of nothing. And all that Pharaoh has unleashed comes springing back upon him and upon his people. But now, chapter 12, we get to the climax of the story and a strange thing happens. As we were reading, I hope that you noticed that when we get to the story of the Passover and the Red Sea, the story ceases to just be straightforward, and this is what happened next. But the story becomes not just storytelling, but it becomes liturgical formation. And I know I just used a word there that may be lost on some of you. But notice as we read the story, it's not just telling us the story, it's telling us what we need to do to remember the story. In fact, it opens this way by saying, because of what's about to happen, Moses, tell people their whole clock has changed. This is going to be the first day of a new year for you. This is going to be the way that you keep time. This is going to be something that you participate in and practice. And so as the story is going on, the scripture is telling us how to remember the story that's going on. Now, you're not very excited about that, but that is so cool. We get two or three chapters of 
shaping and forming. And the reason why that's important is because the text seems to understand, as we will get to in the next few weeks, as we enter into the wilderness, faith in God is not just things that we know in our head and affirm. Faith is something that we actually comes to us through our bodies. It comes to us through formation. It comes to us in ways that shapes the very imagination of who we are because we've given ourselves to that formation again and again and again. And it has shaped this weird people, now called God's people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood in the world. And so how does this particular celebration, this Passover, how does it want to shape us? It's interesting to me that, um, that one of the ways that we're told we have to eat this meal is we have to eat this meal with our shoes on. We have to eat this meal like it's fast food. That it's, it, we can't put a lot of preparation into it. It has to be able to be cooked quickly, cleaned up quickly. We have to, in other words, we have to eat it and beat it. Um, there was a restaurant uh, in Seattle during the years my mom and dad were in ministry there that my dad loved to eat at. Um, I tried to look it up. It, there's, it no longer exists in Seattle, but there's one in Virginia. I might go visit sometime. But it's a restaurant called the Beeliner Diner. And my dad loved to eat there because the food was really good. But it was the funniest place to go eat because you would show up and there would be a line around the block waiting to get in. But it, they had no interest in making the ambiance welcoming. They just, they focused on the food. It reminded me a little bit, those of you who are Seinfeld fans of the, no soup for you, right? Like that whole place. But you would walk in and they would, they would get really frustrated with you if you hadn't already looked at the menu and decided. They'd give you that look like, come on, what? Come on, come on. Like just four choices. What do you want? Come on, come on, come on, come on, right? And then you'd make your choices. And then the whole time you were eating, they kind of yelled at you. Stop talking, start chewing, right? Like they would do that to you the whole time. And then they would say in their t-shirts, that was their slogan, the Beeliner Diner, eat it and beat it. Like just eat and go. It's not a place for a business lunch. It's a place to eat really good food and get out of here. I think about that place every time I read Exodus 12. The Passover is meant for us to eat it with our sandals on, with the staff in our hand. We're supposed to eat this thing and get on the road. Go, go. I find that formation fascinating. I've shared with you before, I've realized the older I've become, how much being part of a family of where everybody's a minister has so shaped so many things about my life. But, but I'm really grateful. Um, it's, it's so unusual to be part of a pastor's family and have all four of our kids living here and my mom living here and extended family living here. That's so unusual. We're so used to living all over the place in different spaces. And, and so we're really trying to take advantage of that while it's, while it's there. But I have realized, man, part of what it meant to be in a pastor's family was we, we transitioned about every four or five years. And I've noticed about myself, this is not an announcement, by the way, but but I've noticed about every four or five years, there's an internal alarm that goes off in me that says it's, it's time for a new adventure, right? Like, we're, we're supposed to be pulling up stakes and moving on, right? Like, there's something in me that has been deeply shaped in the ways that I think Passover wants to shape us. Now, I know I'm looking at people who've never gone anywhere. 
I'm just kidding. This is such a stable community. Uh, I'm not telling you to leave. (laughs) But I do think part of what this story wants to do to us liturgically is it wants to invite us to live lightly in the world. To be ready for the new thing that God wants to do in and through us. To not get so settled with what has been in the past that we can't receive the new thing that God has for us today. And that may mean pursuing a calling that takes you to Germany or takes you somewhere. But it may mean that we just live in a way that is always looking forward to and ready for the way that God is going to call us and bring us into newness. And and as we'll see the next few weeks, I think this story invites us then to risk, to be ready to walk into the Red Sea, having no idea where we're going, only knowing that God has called us into this. And knowing that when we get to the other side, we don't have a whole new creation waiting. We have a wilderness waiting where God is going to work on us and keep forming us to be reflections of that new creation, as I'll say several times over the next couple of weeks. It is one thing to get Israel out of Egypt. It's a totally different thing to get Egypt out of us. And so this meal wants to shape us to be ready for the ways that God is going to constantly mess with you and shape you and shape me to to become reflections of who he is. And I think that's the most important piece. This odd remembrance where we're called to take some of the blood of that lamb that's been at the center of that meal and to mark the doorposts of our homes and lives with that blood. It's a strange practice, no doubt. I noticed this time in the text that God is pretty specific about saying, this is not so much a sign for me, this is a sign for you. And I can't help but fast forward to the end of the scripture. A few months ago when we were in the book of Revelation, we saw the powerful language there about the mark of the beast, but also the mark of the lamb. I think the revelator is borrowing from this story, and not just the story, but from this liturgy that has probably shaped the life of the revelator since he or she was little. They've constantly imagined themselves getting to the first day of the year and being asked this question, who marks your life? And in this moment where the Israelites have to decide Who are we ultimately going to trust? Are we going to side with Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt? Or are we going to mark our life with the vulnerability of the one who invites us to eat it and beat it and go into the desert seeking the transformation that he wants to bring into our lives? And the Israelites, year after year, proclaim We belong to the Lamb. In the next chapter, chapter 13, notice a couple of times, I think the first one's in verse 6, 
There's reference made to the mark on our forehead and the mark on our hand. We're going to get there eventually. We're going to get to Deuteronomy 6.4, what's called the Shema text. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Keep these words I'm commanding you today. Write them on your head and on your hand. We see that already here. Whatever this meal is doing to us, it's not just teaching us about what happened. It's forming us by it, and it's marking us. And it's not just marking our doorpost, but it's marking our head. And I think that mark on our head is about how, as we go out into the world, what do people know about who we belong to and who we serve? And that mark on our hand is about how this is a challenging life that we have to constantly be reminded that we belong to the Lamb. We belong to the Lord. We are being shaped by Him. And so this morning as we get into these texts, these texts ask us some really bold questions. And those questions are this. Where's your security this morning? Where's your security this morning? Is God teaching you to live lightly with your shoes on and your staff in your hand? Or if the Lord called you today into newness, you'd need a couple years to get your house in order and get your act together. This text wonders, are we ready for God, not just to inform us, but to reshape us? And especially today, I think the text invites us to ask this question, what is marking our lives? What is forming and shaping us? As we enter into the world, what does the world see as the primary marker of identity in our life? By the way, that's, that's more than just a preacher wanting to get people to come to church more regularly. But I will say this. Part of what we want to happen today is not just to give you new information, but the reason every week we have a call to worship that invites you into this presence, and then in a moment we'll have a benediction that sends you out, is because there is a kind of rhythm, a kind of formation that we want to have happen in you. In a couple of weeks we get to fall back, thanks be to God. Um, But a few weeks after that we enter into a season called Advent, and And we'll have these moments where we cry out because we need Christ to come and make all things new. And and we'll move through the rhythms of the light coming into the world and journeying beneath the cross and celebrating the resurrected Lord. And the power of the Spirit coming into our lives. We'll do that over and over again because we're wanting a kind of rhythm to shape your imaginations. Because this text doesn't want to just sit in your head. It wants to root in your heart and it wants to weave itself into your very body itself. Are you with me? For the life God calls his people into is not just a life that thinks differently. But it has always been a life that lives differently and imagines differently and is shaped differently. God, help us today. I'm so fascinated at this text that doesn't just tell us a story but invites us into one.
It helps us to dare to believe that the transformation that you bring in the world was not just for slaves in Egypt centuries ago, but it is a newness that you offer to us today in each moment. And so help us today. May we have the eyes to see the kinds of practices that form us most. May we have the courage not just to figure out what's written on the back of our hand, but give us even the courage to reflect on what's written on our head. What is it that the world sees from us? Would they even know that there is a lamb that marks our life? And so help us not just to hear today, but help us to be formed again and again as we gather around your table, as we gather around your word, as we sing songs of praise, as we pray prayers that invite you to come in and to make all things new. Help us live lightly. Help us to be open to what you want to do in our lives. Form us to be your people today, we pray. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me?
stop the Lord Almighty? Oh, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? We know who can stop the Lord Almighty. There's no one who can stop the Lord Almighty. He would come, Lord. Who can stop the Lord? Well, as you're leaving today, uh, three things to remind you of. So as you go in the atrium, there's three events coming up. Uh, one is a Saturday night. Would love for you to come and uh, hear about the partnership with Southeast Asia and meet Bill Kwan. Uh, would love to have you come and be part of the, the pie auction for women's ministry in particular. Um, that really will help us with MOPS ministry and be able to fund all the child care for that. Uh, and then in a month or so, come to the auction uh, to help send kids to NYC. Such an important event. But, you know, all of those support things. But uh, one of the things I've discovered coming out of the last couple of years and with so many new people, I so look forward to opportunities to sit around tables and have conversations with folks. And so... Come to support that stuff, but come to, to meet some folks and to get connected. Um, that's a good thing, right? It's wonderful. Uh, notice, by the way, in the text today, it's usually around tables. We get most formed, and so come. Uh, but if you've listened well this morning, almost every Sunday I pray this prayer benediction for us because we Nazarenes love the term sanctification, holiness. But every time I, I pray this prayer, I'm reminded that, again, sanctification is not just something that is in our heads, although our heads matter. It's not just something in our hearts, although our hearts matter. But it's really our bodies, too. And how God wants to be glorified in all of the work that we do and shape us in that. And that's why this benediction is for us this morning. May the God of peace himself, may he sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, our souls, and bodies be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us, he is faithful, and he will finish his work in us. And God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.